Welcome along. We're in um, Hebrews chapter 2, looking at verses 1 to 9 this week. So if you've got a Bible, open your Bible, keep it open there, and we'll work our way through some of this text uh, together. Um, I believe that from Scripture we can claim that God wants and expects those whom he has redeemed through Jesus Christ to live their life as if Christ was living their actual life. So we're called to live the truth of Scripture. We're called to adhere to it. We're called to interpret Scripture correctly. We're, we're, we're called to express God's truth um, according to the Bible in every way of our lives and, and to live in that manner of glorifying Him. And, and to deviate from the biblical truth, to deviate into an incorrect or an unsuitable biblical, biblical understanding or misunderstanding is a very serious thing. And we're called to avoid that um, in every way possible in our lives, not just to hope we avoid it, but actually avoid it and to make sure that we are living the biblical principles uh, portrayed in God's word today. So that's our backdrop to what we're going to look at. Let's read verses one to four of Hebrews chapter two. Therefore, says the author, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. Very important phrase. Hold that phrase in your mind, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? God also bearing witness, both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts, of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. So that's a big statement right there. We've got to break up a little bit and have a look at. So thinking first about the whole point of we're being warned here in these verses about the the danger of drifting or, or slipping spiritually away from, from God's truth, deviating just a little away from that is what we're talking about. Whenever something begins to drift away, you don't always notice that it's happening. For the believer to begin to drift uh, drift away, if you want, it'll happen as we, we choose not to give the required attention to the things we have heard. And we understand that anyone who is truly saved can never, ever lose their salvation. We believe they're eternally secure in that sense. However, it is very possible for them to experience a, a time or a season of backsliding. That is, they have drifted away from their walk with Christ, from their living for God's glory, from their holding a testimony of truth before their, their fellow man. They've drifted ever so subtly away from that. Now, we've heard that Jesus is superior to the angels, and we believe that and that his throne is eternal. Again, we believe that. And that there's coming a time whenever God will make every one of, of Christ's enemies his footstool. And we rejoice in that. And we believe that we're convinced of that. We also know that the angels serve and minister on behalf of Jesus Christ. And we again love that. And we believe that. So to move from any of that understanding is to drift. To, to move ever so subtly from any of that understanding is to begin to drift away. A simple way to avoid drifting in your walk with God is to read God's word. Uh, the great B.B. Warfield once uh, put it like this, when scripture speaks, God speaks. In other words, when, when you read the word of God, God is speaking to you. If you want God to speak to you, read the Bible. He will speak. That's him speaking continually. Well, one author suggests that we drop the anchor of our souls into the deep waters of the word of God. And by doing so, we will avoid drifting from God and from his truth because we'll be founded and set and continuing in the deep waters of the word of God. Now, in verse two of our text, the author gives his reasoning as to why 
God holds his redeemed people accountable. It's been a practice of God throughout time and throughout scripture to always hold his people accountable for their actions and for their beliefs. In other words, they, they have a belief, they're responsible for that. They have an action, they're responsible for that. Whenever Moses descended from Mount Sinai with the, the two stone tablets on which God had inscribed the Ten Commandments, he discovered that people were, were had busily erected a golden calf, which they were worshipping. And so we read uh, God's response in Exodus chapter 32, verses 35. Here's what we read. And the Lord inflicted a plague on the people for what they did with the calf Aaron had made. You see, they, they thought this is a good thing we're, we're worshipping, but they had drifted from God's truth. So to drift away from God's truth is incredibly serious. Um, we read Leviticus 10, 1 to 3, for example, uh, the, the account of Nadab and Abihu. Then Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, so they had this godly heritage. Each took his censer and put fire in it, put incense on it, and offered profane fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. So fire went out from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. And Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke, saying, by those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy. And before all the people, I must be glorified. To drift from that is to walk away from God and to get things in ter terribly wrong, even though it can be a subtle drift. So in verse 2, we're reminded that every transgression and every disobedience will receive and has historically received a just suitable reward for that action. So a transgression, to break it up a little for us, is an action that goes against God's law, against um, a rule or a code of conduct that God has established. And in our text, it's an action against what God has planned or what God has intended to do. In other words, if we have chosen to, to drift from what God wants to do, he's not going to let us off the hook with that. Remember, our verse opens with the reminder that the word spoken through angels has proven to be steadfast. This is a solid statement. And whilst the angels have delivered lots of messages in Scripture, the, the particular message referred to here is that of the Mosaic Covenant. That's what he's saying right here. He's saying, this is the covenant you've got to hold to. And under the old covenant, uh, this old covenant, a suitable penalty would have to be paid for every transgression made by an individual or by the people collectively. So if the people acted in a certain way against God, they would have to pay for that. If an individual did the same thing, they would have to pay for that. And because of this, the author asked the amazing and great question that we're familiar with in verse 3. How will we escape or how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? If we choose to reject God's truth as expressed in the Bible and in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, we will be held accountable and suitably penalized in an eternal capacity for such a transgression. So all of the unsaved people in the world who have rejected Christ, whether knowingly, ignorantly, suitably, unsuitably, however they chose to do that, they will receive their eternal reward, which will be rejection by God through Jesus Christ, his son because of that. Now, in our text, the writers moved us from uh, the embracing of an old covenant delivered by de delivered to God's people by the angels, by the angelic realm, if you want, to the embracing of a new covenant delivered to the church by the Lord Jesus Christ, the head of the church, God's own son. So this is the one overseeing the church who's responsible for the church. And he says, here's the covenant I want you to follow. And in our text, the writer has moved us to this fresh place. So to reject this new covenant is to reject Jesus Christ and his offer 
of salvation. We're saying, I don't need that. I'm going to hang out with the old one. I'm not going to listen to this new statement by God that he's done and is assured to us from Scripture here. This new covenant is one of good salvation. This is an emphasis that our salvation is both eternal and secure. So if you know Jesus Christ, then you're secure eternally in that. You may wander, you may fall apart, but you're going to return to that true love. You're going to get back there because you want to get back there. And the author makes it clear that this salvation was spoken of by Christ himself. And his point is that whenever Christ speaks, his words take authority over all other speakers, all previous speakers, even the angelic host. So God sent them to make a statement to their day, but this is a new day we're looking at here. And Jesus Christ has spoken, God's son has spoken, so that overrides that, that oversees that. He then writes that this message was confirmed to us by those who heard him. And simply put, uh, this message was handed down to them by, by others, by people who were faithful before, the people who were, who were faithful to God's truth, and determined that the true believers never experience any such drifting away from truth. They're telling the, the generation um, ahead of them, don't drift away. Here's the truth that will keep you locked in, will keep you anchored in God's ways. Don't, don't drift from this truth because this is the solid truth. This is your anchor. This is your foundation. This is steadfast for you. And then in verse four of our text, <clears throat> we read that all of this was approved by God who provided testimony of authenticity through signs and wonders and various miracles. So God puts his stamp on all of this and says, this is truth. What, what you've heard, what you've seen, this is truth. And so the purpose of any miraculous happening is always to qualify that Jesus is who he professes to be. He's the son of God. He's the Messiah. He's God in the flesh. He's the redeemer of sinful man. That's who Jesus is. And these signs and these wonders and these miracles were authentic. Just putting the, the authenticity on that, that Jesus Christ is truly who he claims to be. So our verse continues by showing us that the Holy Spirit then distributes gifts within the church according to his will. Now, the purpose of any spiritual gift is, is to serve the body of the church. It's never to be abused by using it only for personal or private purposes. In other words, I've got this gift. Look at me. That's not what this is about. This is about serving. This is about working. This is about building up and edifying the church. All spiritual gifts are to build up the church that Jesus is building. Let me read Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 to 12 to you. Um, and he himself, that's Jesus, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. And then we, we discover why they're given to the church. For the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, that is the church. So they're there, given to the church to build the church up. They're to edify the church. They're to establish the church and enable the church to function and be used by presenting Christ and glorifying God. In fact, if we back up just a few verses to verse 8 there, we see Paul quote from Psalm 68 where we read, when, when, when Jesus ascended on high, he took the captives captive and he gave gifts to his people. He gave gifts to his people. Now Psalm 68 refers when he, and that is speaking of Jesus in the future. So he gave gifts to his people. And with the full authority of heaven behind him, Jesus then blesses the church which he is building with every gift needed by which he alone can be glorified. So these gifts are here coming into the church to glorify the church and to glorify Jesus and to edify the body, which is the church. And all such gifts and their use within the church serve as a testament to Christ, to his being the head of the church and as being capable of replacing the old covenant 
with what he calls the new covenant. He says, here's the new covenant. This was the old one. Here's the new one. It supersedes that. And with all of that, as we enter this next section then of chapter two, we immediately realize that with his use of the phrase, the world to come in verse five, the author is helping us appreciate that with Jesus being enthroned at the right hand of God, a new plan has been introduced to mankind. So in verse five, we see there's a new plan. There's new steps being introduced to mankind. Through his living here on this earth, uh, then being crucified to redeem his people from their sins and having conquered the final enemy of death by his being resurrected to life, Jesus has provided everything that we have need of for salvation and victorious Christian living. He's even given to his church his own Holy Spirit, enabling us to, to live the life of heaven here on earth. We're capable of doing that as his redeemed today. And so Paul says, and um, Paul says in Ephesians 2, verse 6, that we're seated with Christ in the heavenly places, even though we live here in this earth. We're actually functioning there, even though we live and function here. And the author's point with uh, his phrase that uh, Christ has not put the world to come, of which we speak, in subjection to angels, in verse 5, is simply this. Currently in this present world, the angels have this ruling responsibility with God over the affairs of mankind. But in the world to come, they will not have that role, nor will they have that authority. In the world to come, Jesus Christ will be king unrivaled. He will have this full authority in a public uh, fashion, a public manner that will never be questioned in any way. So then we move on from verse 5 to verses 6 to 8 of our text. And here we meet the term son of man. Let me read the, these verses to us. Verses uh, 6 to 8 of chapter, Hebrews chapter 2. But somewhere, someone somewhere has testified, what is man that you remember him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him lower uh, than the angels for a short time, important phrase. You crowned him with glory and honor and subjected everything under his feet. For in subjecting everything to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. As it is, we do not yet see everything subjected to him that's the current verses we're going to look at right there verses six through eight so here we meet the term son of man in reference to our wonderful savior the lord jesus christ uh, this is a title that jesus used of himself expressing his humanity and the term shows that he will have all of the emotions and all of the physical feelings that mankind experiences during his time here in this life in this earth and his time of suffering now the most amazing thing in all of this is that the one who is superior to the angelic realm, as we've discovered in chapter one, being the Lord Jesus Christ, as the son of man, he chooses, he chooses, consciously chooses to subject himself to living a little lower than the angels, living on a lower level than the angelic realm. Presently, we don't see everything functioning in subjection to Christ as stated in verse 8. We don't see all of that happening currently, like he's fully in control of all things. But then we read these words in verse 9. Now I'm going to read verses 8 and 9 of our text again to us and just help us get that understanding. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. This verse 8. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. So we're not seeing everything under him currently. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. That's what's going to happen. He's going to taste death for everyone. Now, before we get to the depth of verse 9, we need to understand the emphasis of the writer in verse 8 here with his use of the phrase, putting all things or putting everything in subjection 
under his feet. Uh, the one being referred to here is man. Uh, the one that's being referred to is you, is me. That's who he's referring to. Despite the angelic realm having superiority over mankind, God has entrusted the earth, the whole planet, into the care of us. I want you to listen to these amazing words from the first book of the Bible, Genesis, cha very first chapter, chapter 1, verses 26 to 28. Here's God speaking what he says. Then God said, let us, that's the, 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 the Trinity, the triune God, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion, have authority over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every, every living thing that moves on the earth. Have authority over these these places, these things, these people, these circumstances, if you want, that you've got the rule over them. So tragically, because we all fell to sin then, whenever our forefather Adam sinned, we became actually incapable of looking after the earth as God intended for us to do. And because of this, we currently live under the angelic realm with them being uh, superior to us. However, this is only for a season. This is only for a short time within God's economy. In the future, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 3, you and me, as those belonging to God, will be responsible to judge the angels because we're in Christ. Now, currently, we are lower than the angels for this short time, as the text tells us, but someday we will rule over them and we'll actually judge the whole angelic realm. Now, God designed humanity to rule over the angels, but sin and our love affair with sin crippled all of that, destroyed that. So in our verse, whenever the author uses that phrase, everything or all things, that's exactly what he means. Author Michael Kruger writes it like this. He suggests there is a rich irony in God's plan for humanity. We were designed to rule over angels, and yet it was an angelic being, Satan himself, who persuaded Adam and Eve to follow him and to rebel against God. Instead of judging and ruling over angels, the first humans subjected themselves to angels. Instead of rebuking Satan, they listened to him. But the ultimate result was that God's design for the world was profoundly broken. Sin had entered and sin had corrupted. So this angelic realm, along with everything in the world, should have been subject to us. But instead, through sin, we gave over that authority. We gave over the control of the whole thing to Satan. That's how foolish and how subtle the whole thing was with sin taking such a stronghold on mankind and taking us to deviating us away from God's truth. So we live in a fallen world. We know that. Which brings us to verse nine. And this is an incredibly important verse for us to really grasp and to appreciate. You see, uh, the writer immediately speaks of Jesus, who is God. Uh, you see, believing, believing that proved to be incredibly difficult for these early Christians, if you want. They had been heavily tainted in their thinking by a group called the Gnostics, who followed Gnosticism, who found it difficult to accept that Jesus could really be a human being. To them, he was a divine being, definitely, but unable to be confined within human restrictions. So the divine being could never be in a human form. That was impossible, according to them. So our author has to help these Jewish converts to accept that Jesus is both God 
and man, and that from a human perspective, he permitted himself to being made lower than the angels, meaning that in every way, in every single way, Jesus was just like us. He understood us. He gets us. He was just like us. And because of that, Jesus was able to taste and experience death for everyone. We know he was just fully like us, able to do that, but yet without sin. The Puritan preacher John Owen referred to this as being the death of death and the death of, of Christ. The death of death and the death of Christ. And we can live because Jesus died in our place. What a wonderful thing. And Paul refers, this is uh, our being crucified with Christ. You see, Jesus paid the penalty for your sin, so enabling you to live a, a new life for him and for him and through him. <clears throat> so verse 9 tells us, that the glory being experienced by the Lord Jesus Christ with his having conquered sin, death, and the grave is the glory that we can expect to enjoy with him in the future. Whenever we, like Jesus, have been resurrected to eternal life and we're no longer slaves to sin. And so in all of this, we need to remember that it's only Christ who can save, only Christ who can who is superior to every other being. And so to, to, to deviate in any subtle form from such truth even by the slightest of spiritual degrees, is to get our biblical understanding terribly wrong, jeopardizing our relationship with Christ where our sins are forgiven and when we're fitted for an eternal home and glory with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We've got to get these things right. See, truth is so important. And knowing that truth through knowing Jesus Christ and as being God in the flesh and co-equal with uh, the Father in every way is essential if we're going to live for his glory today.